We read from John 6, 52 to 59. My flesh and my blood. John 6, 52. The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus, therefore, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us by your Holy Spirit the things that we must understand from this portion of your word. Grant us, Lord, insight, grant us wisdom, and grant us faith to believe these and to transform, be transformed in our life because we understand your word better and are able to communicate the true gospel to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in this paragraph that we've just read, we come across a few major issues that need to be addressed. One of those issues is, again, as we see in the Bible and even in this chapter, the issue of whether people, if they could just be told the truth, the magnificent truth, if they could just be presented with it in the best way, the proper way, then they'll believe. So the gimmicks usually surround the presentation of the, the gospel or the pre presentation of the Bible as a way to convince people to believe. The way we say things or what we say is what God offers to them, which is eternal life. If we would just do it the right way, if we just present the eternal life, then they would believe. We, we see in this passage that that's not the case. He presents it, especially in verses 57 and 58, he presents it and they don't believe. Another issue that comes up in this passage is what Jesus meant by eating the flesh of the Son of Man. What did Jesus mean by eating the flesh of the Son of Man? Did he mean it in the Catholic sense of transubstantiation? Did he mean it in that sense that when the priest prays over the bread and the cup, then the bread and the cup actually become the unbloody sacrifice of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's what they teach. So that every time that that prayer is offered and every time that the worshipers worship in Catholicism, they are partaking or eating of the blood of Christ. And that's necessary for their eternal life. It's necessary for their salvation. That is the Catholic doctrine, transubstantiation. Thirdly, another issue that comes up is in verse 52, when these Jews argue with one another. 
they argue or they dispute, they grumble amongst each other because they're hearing something. And instead of believing what they're hearing, sometimes clearly spoken and sometimes illustrated, instead of believing in what is clearly and plainly spoken, taught, either directly or indirectly with an illustration, instead of believing it, they, they wrangle about words. They dispute. They argue. They don't want to believe it. And therefore, it shows in their behavior by arguing with each other. Let's see one by one as we start in verse 52 how these three issues, main issues, are addressed. Starting with the third one, that is them quarreling with each other. Verse 52, the Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They argue with each other. And in this case, when it says they argue, it's not talking about argumentation. It's not talking about reasoning. It's not talking about the use of logic. That's not what's meant here. Sometimes when we say to argue, we mean it that way. We mean, let's have a calm and rational, logical discussion about the issue and come to a conclusion because we're not, we're not consumed by our emotions. We're not consumed by our biases. We are just wanting to know the truth. So let's reason with each other and come to an agreement. In that sense, we use the word to argue. And sometimes the Bible uses that word to argue that way. But I think in this case, the Bible isn't using the word that way. Just as sometimes in English, we don't say the word to argue that way. We mean to dispute, to fight, to quarrel, to wrangle, to wrangle about words. And I think in this contentious way is what is meant here in 52, verse 52. And the reason we believe this has to do with the fact that they don't believe. All of their wrangling, all of their quarreling, all of their disputations with each other don't lead to faith, don't lead to belief. But if you were to use your mind in a calm, rational way, then you would understand what is exactly said by Christ. And if God grants faith, you would believe in Christ. But you wouldn't dispute. You wouldn't be wrangling about it. How do we know that these people who were arguing never believed? Look at verse 60. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? And in verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. Finally, in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These people who are arguing are the kind that love to dispute, to fault find, to quarrel and bicker about words and concepts being spoken. That's the kind of people they are because they end up walking away. And Jesus said, that they didn't believe in verse 64. And they couldn't tolerate listening to the truth, so they walk away. 
they grumble about it and want nothing to do with Jesus anymore. That's who we are talking about in verse 52. People are often this way. When they are resisting the truth, they behave like this. Let's see more examples. Keep your place here and turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. Verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The different doctrine is a false doctrine. They don't agree with sound words, those words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the words of Jesus Christ conform to godliness. It produces godliness, holiness, righteousness in the people who believe it. But people who refuse to believe it are called conceited. They understand nothing. They have a morbid interest, a morbid interest, a perverted, distorted interest in controversial questions. They love to dispute words, disputes about words. And when this happens, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction occur. And who is disputing like this? Men of depraved mind. Men of depraved mind. They are the ones who dispute like this. And why? What is their preoccupation? That godliness is a means of gain. They think they're going to have some earthly advantage by pursuing religious matters. Is that not what happened in John 6? They were hoping that their stomachs would be, would be full again by following Jesus, correct? They weren't following Jesus at that point for the truth. They were following Jesus because of his miracles and because he had fed them, the 5,000. He fed them and that's what was their reason for coming to him. They thought if they are religious with Jesus, he'll give them some gain. Give them some food for their stomach. But that's not the way it works. We see another example of this in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, 
saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And thus, they upset the faith of some. He says in 14, he reminds Timothy and solemnly charges him and them, that is those uh, adversaries of Timothy, solemnly charges them not to wrangle about words, to wrangle about words. Why? Because it's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Instead, we should be presenting accurately the word of truth without any shame, avoiding the worldly and empty chatter that leads to further ungodliness. He then illustrates with Hymenaeus and Philetus. These two false teachers who went astray from the truth, teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. And how is it that they've done this? The word resurrection was not invented by Hymenaeus and Philetus. It's a biblical word. But what did they do? They hijacked this biblical word resurrection, and then they begin to say resurrection means this. It doesn't mean that. So what they what do they do? They contradict the biblical meaning of it. They start wrangling and disputing. No, no, resurrection doesn't mean that. You're wrong. It means this. And they start teaching the false doctrine of resurrection by hijacking a biblical word, a very good word that's found in the Bible. They take a good word and they pollute it and distort it. In fact, what they do is called gangrene. Gangrene, this fatal disease of the body. But this is a fatal disease of the soul. False teachers will take biblical words and, and invest unbiblical meanings in those biblical words. They'll also take common words with an uncommon meaning and distort them. As it says in Jude, Jude 16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude says this. And then Jude 19, he says that these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Jude 16 and 19. That's what's happening here. They are devoid of the Spirit. They're causing divisions because they're fighting with each other, right? They're arguing with each other in a sinful way, and they refuse to believe because they're in it for their stomach. They're not in it for their soul. They're in it for their stomach. Let's return now to John 6, 6.52. Their opposition to belief is, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? As though, as though Jesus Christ whom they've already called a prophet in verse 14. This is of a truth, a prophet who is to come into the world, whom they've already called in 625, 625, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi or teacher, when did you get here? And already he has told them that he is the bread of life, John 6, 35, and John 6, 51, I am the living bread. He's already told them that he is the bread of life. So how could they, how could they conclude that a true prophet of God, 
a true teacher of God, who is saying that he is the bread of life, how could they think he's talking about, you have to kill me and then eat my flesh and bones, or eat my flesh and drink my blood? How in the world could they conclude that? How could they conclude that unless they are fault finders? If they are fault finders, looking for something to nitpick with Christ, they would say that. And they would say this in mockery of him. Not because they literally believed he would teach that, because who teaches that? Who teaches that? Even some of the most egregious false religions of the world, they don't teach this. There are a few, of course, that do teach it, but not the vast majority of them. So how in the world could they fathom that Jesus Christ, whom they already called a prophet, whom they already wanted to take by force and make him king, that he's now teaching, you have to cannibalize my own flesh and blood. He's not teaching cannibalism. Yet, this is what those who don't want to believe, these disputers, these people who wrangle about words, they nitpick and they put uh, a spin on the words of the true teacher. Something that the true teacher never implied, would never even fathom saying, they put those concepts or those words into the mouth of the true teacher, which they've done here to Christ. Verse 53. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In these verses 53 and 54, Christ clarifies to them what they must do with the emphatic, truly, truly, I say to you. He is making his words believable or necessary to believe, incumbent upon them to believe by emphasizing how true his words actually are. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now they have no excuse if they reject it. Now they have no excuse if they don't believe it. These are the true words of Christ. He would not speak a lie. He would not speak anything contrary to the Father because he says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me. He is in one purpose, in one mind, and also in one nature with the Father. So his words are true words. So what do they need to do? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. They must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. What does he mean? He simply means you must believe in my death for your sins. You must believe in my death for your sins. My death on the cross that is imminent. You must believe in my death for the forgiveness of your sins. He could not and would not ever be saying, you have to eat me in any sense other than faith. He could not mean that. We've already described or refuted the notion of cannibalism. He could not be teaching that because it would be ridiculous for him to say, if you eat me, literally, 
in a cannibalistic way, then you will never die. Because they could easily go and talk to people of false religions who do practice, a few people practice cannibalism and they die. They end up dying. How could he be saying that you have to literally eat me and never die? He's talking about faith in his death for eternal life. Faith in his death for eternal life. The eternal life aspect is in verse 58. He who eats this bread shall live forever. He who eats this bread shall live forever. He's talking about faith. Faith in his death for eternal life, which is also what he says in 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Faith in his death. Keep our place here and turn to chapter 12. John 12, 12, 32. John 12, 32 to 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. When he's lifted up, meaning lifted up on the cross, lifted up on the cross, he will draw all to himself. And he's talking about the cross, his crucifixion, because he says in 33, John the Apostle clarifies, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. It was imminent. It was about to happen. John 18. John 18. John 18, 31. John 18, 31 to 32. Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who has the ability to order the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 1831, Pilate therefore said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. If the Jews were permitted under the Roman authorities to put someone to death, how would they do that? They would typically stone the man to death, which is what they attempted to do in John 8, 59. They attempted to stone him. But if the Romans are able, they will put him on a cross. They will crucify him on a cross. And this is what John says. Pilate will end up ordering the crucifixion of Christ. So his lifting up and the death he's about to die is what these people must believe. All of us must believe in that very fact of history, that he was put on the cross, buried for three days, and was raised from the dead on the third day and appeared to many as evidence of his true resurrection, factual resurrection. He says, there's no other way to have life. He says in verse 53, John 6, 53, unless you believe in this son of man, you have no life in yourselves. 54, the one who does so has eternal 
life. And in verse 58, he who eats this bread shall live forever. He's talking about faith in him. Now, a clarification on the Roman Catholic false doctrine based on a passage like this. Roman Catholics say Jesus is teaching that if you partake of the mass, partake of the elements of the bread and the cup, then you have eternal life. Well, there's a few things erroneous about that doctrine. For one, we just saw, and it's clear based on a plain reading of this passage, Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about believing in him, which he started to say in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Christ satisfies our hunger. Believing in Christ satisfies our thirst. Coming to Christ, believing in Christ, eating of Christ, drinking of Christ are all synonyms of faith in Christ. Correct? So in context, the Catholic doctrine is false. He's not talking about that. Number two, a second reading, uh, a reason it is false has to do with the fact that the Lord's Supper has not been introduced yet in John 6. The Lord's Supper is not introduced until John 13, sometime later. So this would have been completely unknown to even the 12 disciples. Even to the 12 disciples, they would not have known any of this yet. And yet he calls them believers in 66 to 71. They are believers, uh, 11 of the 12, not Judas, but they are believers. So if they are believers, they don't yet practice and believe in the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. They don't believe in that because they haven't been taught that yet. It has not been Introduced Chronologically, it's impossible. And there's no hint that this would be instituted before this point, given to the disciples, not taught. Number three, a third reason why the Catholic doctrine is false has to do with them saying, you must do it to obtain eternal life. You must do it. What have they done when they say you must do it to obtain eternal life? They have made it a necessary work in addition to faith in Christ. And not only do they place this work on people, they place many other works on people to obtain eternal life. We cannot add any work to the work of Christ. If we do, we are heretics according to the book of Galatians because the Galatians wanted to add circumcision to faith in Christ. Catholics want to add the Lord's Supper or communion to faith in Christ in order to obtain eternal life. They want that to be the basis. A fourth reason why the Catholic doctrine is false is making this ritual something necessary for eternal life, which ritual was never practiced by anybody in the Old Testament, which means that Abraham was saved without practicing this ritual. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're all saved without practicing this. That means 
that the basis of their salvation is something other than Christ alone, and it's exclusive of the Lord's Supper, their salvation. They're making the way of salvation different for people throughout the history of the world when there is only one way, Christ. So for these reasons, in context and otherwise in biblical theology, biblical context, it does not fit the facts of Scripture. It's false. Let's proceed. Christ has, in verse 54, not only promised eternal life, but he has said, and I will raise him up on the last day. Raise him up on the last day. He says something similar in 57. He also shall live because of me. And 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. He has been promising eternal life, but even between the time of our conversion and until the time uh, we meet Christ face to face, he is promising us that he's going to raise us up to eternal life. From the beginning of our salvation to the end of our salvation, from the time we are converted to the time we meet him in heaven face to face, he is promising us to raise us up on the last day. The one he saves is also the one he sanctifies and also the one who at the final day, on the last day, the day of resurrection, he will raise us up from the dead to eternal life, a resurrection of life. Keep your place here and turn to John 5. John 5, 28 and 29. John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment or resurrection of condemnation. Everyone who is dead will be raised from the dead. Some to everlasting life or a resurrection of life. Others to a resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Everyone, therefore, will have a physical body in which he will live forever, either in heaven or in the lake of fire in hell. It's one of these two places, in a physical body. John 5, 28 to 29 teaches that doctrine. But what is the assurance he's giving us? What is this hope? What is this promise? What is this good doctrine, good hope he is presenting before these people that they reject? I'm not only going to save you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to strengthen you, I'm going to keep you steadfast in Christ, I'm going to ensure that you persevere until the end, you endure until the end. For he who endures until the end shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. We must endure until the end, but who is going to ensure that this happens? He says, I will raise you up on the last day. I am going to guarantee that this happens. Yes, we must persevere, but our confidence, our assurance 
is not in our ability to do it, but in Christ's ability to keep us until the day of resurrection. He said so earlier in verse 44, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We who come to Christ, he will raise us up on the last day. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly not cast out. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. 10, 26. John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Father has a strong hand, a strong right hand. And even the Son has a strong right hand. These are figures of speech. Their strength, their power is so strong that no one, including the devil including ourselves, including even the strong men of the earth or a mighty king. No one can take us out of the Father's hand and the Son's hand. No one. This is why Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Can you imagine offering eternal life like this and yet they walk away? Why? Because the human heart that hears it, the human heart that hears it is so cold, uh, stone cold. It's so callous. It's so insensitive to the things of God. It doesn't matter what God is offering. It doesn't matter what God is presenting in the gospel. They don't want it. And there will be people who just stare at you with a straight face and not want it. Or they might put their head down in grief and just walk away. Or they might, start, they might call you names. They might spit in your face. They might threaten to punch you in the face. They might close the door, slam the door on you. They might threaten to harm you with violence. They might do these kinds of things. But they don't want the eternal life that you present to them. And why? Usually it's not because... You were not brilliant enough. It's not because you were not smart enough. It's not because you didn't quote the Bible enough. It's not because you don't know how to speak. It's not because you're not tall and handsome enough. It's not because you don't have enough money. You don't have enough degrees. You don't have a PhD. It's not for any of these reasons. It's not even for the reason that you did not present a good show good music, a good light show, smoke screen. It's not because you didn't do any of these things that they refuse to believe. The reason is, the fundamental reason is, their heart is stony. They don't want eternal life. Even if you present it 
in all of its beauty as Christ just did. He's presenting eternal life in all of its beauty, all of its miraculous, wonderful nature, what is offered to them forever and ever in the presence of God forever and ever. And they have the temerity, they have the audacity to walk away, withdraw and not believe it anymore. This is necessary to understand because it's often easy for us to be discouraged. It's easy for us to be discouraged when people walk away, when we tell them the truth. We should not be discouraged. It happens all the time. It happened to Christ our Lord. It happened to the apostles. It happened to the prophets. It happened to Stephen. Stephen was neither an apostle nor a prophet nor Christ. And it happened to Stephen. In fact, they were so incensed at him that they stoned him to death. Acts chapter 7. Don't be surprised if people despise it and want nothing to do with it. Don't be discouraged. Trust in God. Have faith in God. Faith in God. And don't be alarmed. Don't be discouraged. But also note that everyone who follows is not a true follower. Everyone who says he's a believer is not a true believer. Everyone who says he's a Christian is not a true Christian. Everyone who says he's a brother is not a true brother. It doesn't work like that. Like in this case, these people, it says in verse 66, they're called disciples. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. John the Apostle illustrates for us many times throughout this book that people may may be called believers. They might say something true about Christ, but they end up showing themselves to be unbelievers. Here in 666, he calls them disciples, but they are obviously false disciples. Remember earlier, they professed in 614, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew that was true about Christ. He was the prophet. But they weren't true believers. What did Nicodemus assert? We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 3, verse 2. But Nicodemus was not a believer, not yet. In John 3, 2. People, in other words, can indeed understand many things and yet not be true believers. We have to. We must embrace everything he says until the very end. Further, a word of clarification, verse 55. 55, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In 55, When he calls his flesh and blood true food, true drink, he is talking about eternal life. He's talking about spiritual matters. He's talking about heavenly matters. He doesn't mean that physical food is false food because it's true in a sense that it nourishes the body. He understands that. He fed them that with bread and fish, right, earlier. He's not talking about physical food. He's talking about his own person being their true nourishment 
for eternal life. By belief in him, he is the true, spiritual, heavenly, eternal source of their soul's necessary nourishment for eternal life. Necessary provisions for eternal life. That's why he says true food. Keep your place here and we'll see a couple of examples in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, where this term, true, is used again. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. The true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. The true tabernacle. Well, does that mean that Moses' tabernacle was a false tabernacle? No, because God told Moses to build it. God instituted all of that sacrificial system through Moses. He's not saying Moses' tabernacle is a false tabernacle is a worthless one. But what he's talking about is the true, ultimate, spiritual way of eternal life is in the tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Because Moses and his helpers, his craftsmen, they were the ones that pitched the tabernacle. They constructed it, they formed it, they made the furniture, right? All of that was originating from human hands. And God ordained it. So it was a good thing. It was a true tabernacle in the sense that it wasn't a pagan altar. It was a true altar. But in comparison to the ultimate true way of eternal life, it is found in Jesus Christ. He is the true tabernacle who leads us to the true land of Canaan. He leads us to the true promised land, meaning the ultimate promised land. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 23. Hebrews 9, 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Here is another example of this word true in contrast to the earthly tabernacle, the earthly dwelling place, the earthly tent of meeting. That the one on earth needed to be cleansed, that's why God instituted the sacrifices that Moses and Aaron started. God uh, instituted it and ordained for them to start it. But the one in the heavens, into heaven itself, this is the true one. This is the ultimate one. This is the place of eternal life. That's what Christ meant in John 6. You want true food? You want true drink? drink? It's found in me, he says. My flesh and my blood. Further. If we believe in Christ, we remain in Christ and Christ in us. Remain or abide. 
remain or abide. He stays in us and we stay in him. This is another indication of our unity with him. We are in Christ. We are one with Christ. Not that we become Christ, as some false teachers say, but we are one with Christ in that he dwells in us, we remain in him, we have the promise of eternal life because we are united to Christ by faith. In faith we are united to him, not in any ontological way, not in any literal, physical way do we become Christ, not like that. False teachers say that. This is common to believe this way in false religions, such as in certain charismatic and Pentecostal beliefs. Um, They believe that we become little gods or we become Christ in the flesh in some sense. They believe like that. But that's not what he's teaching here. He's teaching that we are one with him in faith. And if we are one with him, united with him in faith that will remain forever and ever. That's what he means. We remain in him forever, which we've already shown from elsewhere, such as John 10, 26 to 30, that he will not throw us out. He will raise us up on the last day. And then 57, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. The living Father. This is an unusual expression. Usually in the Bible, it is the living God. But here he's specifying that the living God is actually his Father. So that their association, the Jews' association with the living God cannot be a true association, cannot be a true relationship with the Father or God unless it is through Christ. Just as life is in the Father, life is found in Christ. And he says here, and I live because of the Father. He came into the world. He's not talking about his deity. When when he says, I live because of the Father, he means I have come into the world, assumed the human nature, through the the virgin birth, which we celebrate at this season. He's saying that this is what I have come into the world to accomplish. I live because of the Father. The Father sent me, verse 57, into the world in a special way for a special purpose, and that is to die on the cross. Therefore, it's necessary for you to eat me or to believe in me so that you might have life because of me. Life is only in Christ. Therefore, it's necessary to believe in Christ. In 53, there's a phrase which we have not explained recently. The son of man. The son of man. The phrase the son of man has reference to the fact that Jesus not only has a human nature, as he says in 57, and I live because of the Father, but it also has a dual purpose. It also shows that he has a divine nature. The phrase Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite designations of himself. He speaks of himself in the third person, the Son of Man, 
because it has a dual purpose. One, it identifies his perfect human nature, having come into the world, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, 18-25, by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 35, that holy thing begotten is from the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 35, from the Holy Spirit. But though he has a perfect human nature, he also is divine. Then these two concepts come together, for example, in, in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where we read of the Son of Man coming in glory. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It teaches us in verse 13, this is a vision of the return of Christ, the second coming. He's called Son of Man, coming. He is presented before the Father who is called here the Ancient of Days. But then what is given to the Son in verse 14? To the Son of Man is given dominion, glory, kingdom, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Serve him is an indication of his deity, his divinity, that we are to serve or worship him. And he obtains an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion. So the Jews understood that when the Christ comes, he was to be this son of man and he was to be worshipped. He was to be worshipped. Evidence of this. Evidence of this. Turn it back a few pages to the book of Luke. The book of Luke. Luke twenty-two, sixty-six. Luke twenty-two, sixty-six. And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. In Matthew and Mark, it says, we have heard the blasphemy. And they say, because of this blasphemy, you're saying you're the son of man. You're saying you are the Christ. You're saying you are the son of God. We know what Daniel meant in Daniel chapter 7, which Jesus quotes here in 
2269. Jesus quotes Daniel 7, and they know what that's about, but they didn't want to believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ that they themselves should worship. They didn't want that. So they didn't believe in him. This is the same problem of unbelief with these people in John 6. Jesus is saying the same thing. He called himself the Son of Man. He told them that that he lives because of the Father, the miraculous incarnation of the Son of Man, and he's offering eternal life to them. But they refuse it. They refuse it. Now, if everything has been unclear, it shouldn't be unclear by the time we get to 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. He said, I came down out of heaven. Not his body. His body was miraculously conceived in Mary. But his person, he came down in his person from heaven in a physical body to minister and to die on the cross. This is what he means, that he is this bread that came down out of heaven. And I'm not talking about physical things, not as the fathers ate and died. I'm not saying I have the ability to do just like Moses and give you manna to eat. I'm not saying I could, if I wanted every day, take a few loaves and fish and give you plenty to eat. I could do those things, but I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm not talking about manna, and I'm not talking about fish and bread, literal fish and bread. I'm talking about eternal life. And if you believe in me, eat this bread, you shall live forever. Let us therefore not be like the people. And let's pray that our loved ones are not like these people that are so infatuated with the world, so in love with the things of the world. They cannot see beyond their physical needs, their physical desires, their physical pleasures. They can't see beyond them. They just want and want and want. They indulge themselves. Let's be the opposite. Let us eat the bread which is from heaven, Christ, and live forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.